0: Welcome to Serving Victims Through the System, a podcast dedicated to system-based advocacy topics hosted by Isla White County Victim Witness Services in Isla White, Virginia. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. We got a great response from our last podcast where we analyzed a specific crime through a victim services lens. In fact, so much so that we thought it'd be a great idea to do the same for Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, which happens every February. And last year, actually, my colleague and close friend Hallie and I did a vlog focused on Teen DV Month with some common myths and insider tips for preventing and combating teen DV. I'll make sure to link it so you can check it out after this episode. And additionally, Isla White Victim Witness did a blog post on the history of teen DV if you want to check that out too for anybody who prefers to read rather than watch people talk or listen to people talk. Also, as a quick note, you might typically hear domestic violence referred to as DV. However, in the context of this episode, teen DV means teen dating violence. I just wanna point that out for anyone who might hear teen DV and think it stands for teen domestic violence. It doesn't because teens can't fit the technical definition of domestic violence unless they're experiencing it from a parent or guardian. We describe this a bit more in detail in our blog post. That's why I mentioned it. I mean, you can definitely make sure to go check it out and learn a little bit more. So anyways, this episode, we're gonna take a look at a very recent and still ongoing teen DV case. Um, Here is a trigger warning for you. This episode will discuss teen dating violence, intimate partner violence, and homicide. Since this case is currently ongoing, I don't have much to report on the court-specific front. And there's probably also a lot of information that hasn't been made public to protect the integrity of the case. So I'm just going by what I was able to find available on the internet. Just kind of keep that in mind as I'm talking about the case. But I do want to point out that the available public information can still be beneficial to understanding TeenDB and analyzing our community responses to it. Let's talk some statistical background first. TeenDB is highly prevalent. In fact, the CDC has done multiple studies to come up with the following stats on their website. So one in 11 females and 1 in 15 male high school students indicated they'd experienced physical dating violence at some point. 1 in 9 female and 1 in 36 male high school students indicated they'd experienced sexual dating violence at some point. Additionally, 26% of women and 15% of men that took the National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Survey, and in that survey indicated that at one point they had been a victim of IPV, including sexual violence and stalking, Um, actually first experienced those violent incidents with the partner that was the abusive partner in the relationship while they were still a minor. I know that stat's a little bit difficult to interpret, so I have made sure to link the Teen DV webpage from the CDC in the episode description for you, and you can check it out after you finish listening to this episode to learn more about the National intimate partner and sexual violence survey, and how it's conducted, the methodology, etc., for you to be able to make your own interpretations and understand it a little bit better. Additionally, Fifth and Pacific, formerly known as Liz Claiborne, conducted a survey through Knowledge Networks in 2010. So according to VAWnet, which is a project of the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, you know, Knowledge Networks and Fifth and Pacific found a few interesting statistics that VAWnet has published. So 57% of those poll respondents indicated they found it difficult to identify dating violence. And additionally, 58% of college students don't know how to help someone who identifies as a victim of dating violence. So they used this particular survey. They, one, studied college students, right? They polled college students. And two, they're using the survey to sort of make generalizations about the college student population. So that's where the 58% of college students don't know how to help someone who identifies as a victim of dating violence. So those are some important statistics that are actually related to this particular case that we're gonna talk about, which is why I brought them up. Unfortunately, individual states don't keep segments statistics of teen dating violence. So I can't find too much about teens experiencing DV in Virginia, but if the national numbers indicate anything, it's that our teens are experiencing DV in ways that we never expected, and those behaviors can actually later translate into adult IPV. Regardless, teen DV is serious and can result in highly fatal consequences, such as in the case of Morgan McCaffrey. So Morgan McCaffrey lived in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. And actually, like, if you look on a map, depending on how far out you zoom, you might consider it part of Philly. I made the mistake at first, but after doing some more research, I found out that she actually resided in one of the counties that borders on the city limits. Welcome to urban metro areas. I do this all the time when I'm looking up for things and I realize that, oh, it looks like it's in New York City. And then I zoom in and I find out that it's actually in Yonkers or something. I don't know. So just kind of keep that in mind. It's not metro Philadelphia. It is suburban Philadelphia right outside of the city line. So anyways, Morgan had just graduated from a private school that is located in Northeast Philadelphia. She was actually set to attend Manor College in the fall, according to one of the photos in her high school's Facebook post about her, which I'll have linked for you in the episode description. Her school described her as a light, referencing a care package distribution she'd actually organized for local nurses during the pandemic. In the photos they shared, she does have a huge, radiant smile, full of life, ready to take on the world. She is an absolutely beautiful girl. But unfortunately, Morgan was murdered on July 27th of 2020. According to an article by Vinnie Vella in the Philadelphia Inquirer, also known as the Inquirer, she was found that morning, so on July 27th, next to her idle car in the parking lot of a train station that's right outside of Philly. An autopsy found that she had been stabbed over 30 times, according to Catherine Scott and Maggie Kent's article for AB6 Action News. The night before, on July 26th, Morgan left her home to meet up with her ex-boyfriend at this train station, who she had broken things off with in June, according to Bella. They were just going to talk, apparently, which I have found that's how a lot of these incidents occur. This is how abusers exercise power and control over their victims. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but just kind of know this guise of going to talk is how a lot of abusers are able to manipulate their victims into spending time with them, and it can unfortunately have some fatal consequences. So anyways, in a news release that came from the Montgomery County DA's office, they describe arriving to the scene, like like officials and police officers have arrived to the scene, and they find Morgan and ultimately determine that her ex-boyfriend had murdered her that morning and then headed back home. In fact, they even state that they responded to a 911 call at his house and discovered him in the home with bloody clothing on. In an article by Joe Siavaglia on the morning call, apparently the defendant's mother actually called it in. She told police she'd seen him in bloody clothing and he had told her that he'd apparently hurt his girlfriend. And honestly, my mom would have definitely done the same thing. And to be honest, I don't even think she would have asked me what was going on. (laughs) She would have just called the police. (laughs) Anyway, so Sia Vaglia goes on to describe that police find the defendant in his home with bloody clothes on, and he apparently admits to them that he murdered Morgan. So they arrest him, and he actually is currently charged with first and third degree murder, as well as possessing an instrument of a crime, according to Scott and Kent. Sia Vaglia mentions that the police found a bloody knife in the defendant's car. So that's probably where that particular possessing an instrument of a crime charge comes from, is, is finding that. Nice. I'm gonna actually use large portions of the Sia Baglia article moving forward because it contains some contextual information that will really help us analyze and walk through how this case is the perfect example of TeenDB. They use source materials from some affidavits, which I obviously don't have access to. However, all of the articles that are referenced in this episode are linked in the episode description. So you can do any additional research that you want into this case and you can make your own conclusions, things like that. So, anyways, let's kind of go over some additional information from the source i found that might give you some more clues and actually give you the opportunity to do some analysis of your own before I really go in depth here. So first, the news release from the DA's office indicates a witness saw a white jeep parked next to Morgan's car during her murder. The same witness claims they saw a man standing over her, then jumping into a white jeep and fleeing the scene. Siavaglia mentions that when police arrived to the defendant's home, his white jeep was parked out front, which is also where they found the knife. A creepy side note, in the photo that her high school posted of her in the Manor College shirt, the front passenger wheel and front passenger side hood slash bumper of a white Jeep Patriot is seen in the corner. I'm unsure if that's a neighbor's car or something, but my mind immediately thinks that there's like a slim chance that the photo the high school used was in fact taken by her ex-boyfriend himself, or maybe he was hanging out with her that day and was in the living room. But if that's like his car in the photo, there's a pretty good chance that he was actually the one that took the picture of her. I'm going to let you marinate on that one. Like I said, everything is linked for you so you can go and look at the picture yourself. And like I said to the witnesses only describe a white Jeep, Um, you can tell from the photo that it's a white Jeep. Patriot. I have no idea what her ex-boyfriend actually drives because a Jeep Cherokee or a Jeep Renegade don't look like a Jeep Patriot. So I have no idea. It could be a complete coincidence. It could not even be his vehicle. But I still just kind of wanted to point that out because after I learned about the witnesses seeing a white Jeep and then I saw that picture and I saw that white Jeep in the corner, I got this very weird feeling. And so I just wanted everyone else to also be aware of that. So second, all of the news articles mention that Morgan went to meet the defendant at the train station to talk about their prior relationship. Interestingly enough, Theobaglia mentions that it was Morgan's current boyfriend, who provided the intel to police that Morgan had received a call from the defendant on the 26th of July, so earlier on the 26th, to meet up and talk. Third, Sia provides that at the beginning of July or the end of June, somewhere around that time frame, a confidential friend of Morgan's responded to Morgan's distress call because the defendant was threatening her and Morgan was afraid. Fourth, Sia and Vela talk about a friend, unsure if it's the same friend just mentioned, who describes to police that the defendant had a history of being abusive during their relationship, but he had wanted to talk to Morgan about him being better and wanting to fix things. This is despite the fact that she had already moved on and was with a new person. So what does this information tell us both on the surface and between the lines? Number one, without a doubt, Morgan was the victim of teen dating violence. Number two, we can kind of infer here that maybe nothing had been done about the situation prior. No additional information has been revealed as to whether or not Morgan had ever obtained a protective order or anything like that, but I am hesitant to harp on this particular issue because of the age grouping of those involved, right? So Morgan had dated this guy for a year before she was murdered, and since she was recently 18, she had been, you know, 16 or 17 while she was dating this guy, and that would make her a juvenile, and there's a pretty good chance based off of his age that he was also a juvenile and her you know everybody they were all kids they were all teenagers so because of them being juveniles for a good period of time like prior to the murder there's a chance that there might be some information about the situation right like she might have reported something to her high school counselor or you know to a resource officer or there might even be some juvenile court records but because they're in a different court and because they involve juveniles or they might be in a school setting kids have some additional protections afforded to them that adults don't especially when it comes to criminal offenses and things in the the court of law so this is actually a something that I would be interested to see come out at the trial or in sentencing because this information might bring some more context to the case and, and situation. Three, her friends clearly didn't really know what to do, right? So like nothing in addition to what Vagli or Avella report reveal that her friends had tried to encourage her to seek help. And that could just be because they chose not to report that, not include that in their stories. However, based on the polls that I mentioned earlier, we know there's a good chance her friends didn't even know how to identify those behaviors or how to support support her, right? I mean, you know, we just have to go back to that fifth and pacific the stat of 58% of college students not knowing how to support somebody and 57% of the people who took that survey not even saying that they knew how to identify dating violence. And because those were college students, and if they didn't know as college students, you know, between the ages of 17 and 24, there's a pretty good chance that these high school students who were anywhere between 14 and 18 also didn't know the same signs to look for. So number four, the defendant actually exhibits classic abusive traits even after their relationship ended. It's very common for abusive partners to manipulate their victims and to spending time with them. So because we always want to see the good in people, and because many DV victims believe their partners just need some help or encouragement or that they can even fix them, they can easily fall prey to an abuser's tactics, especially if they've been in the relationship for a while. So this is also what leads me to believe that Morgan and her friends hadn't really alerted other adults to what was going on, and that Morgan really wasn't in contact with a local DV shelter or program. Otherwise, there might have been a support system there to discourage her from Meeting up with her ex-boyfriend, and she also might have even had a safety plan available. Unfortunately, her ex-boyfriend's motives, whatever they were, (laughs) were successful. Right, he was able to get her to that train station to talk to him. And whether or not he went in there with the intention of killing her, that's to be determined based off of trial. And the only reason why I mention that is because there's this additional detail that I think is really important that we're going to talk about right now. But it's not something that hasn't really been brought up, and I don't know if it's because no one's really made the connection or because it might be something that's going to be expanded on in trial or sentencing. But I'm really interested to talk about Morgan's new boyfriend and the timeline of it, right? So we often see where abusers become excessively violent or that the violence escalates to homicide when the person or persons that they were abusing start to move on. Typically, it happens when prior partners get new partners. So in stalking cases, we'll see where stalkers realize, oh, you know, this person that I'm stalking, they have a new boyfriend. They will actually go and start stalking the new boyfriend or they will escalate their violence with the person that they are stalking because they're upset and angry that the person that they are stalking has a new boyfriend or girlfriend or, you know, another romantic partner. That's not them. So abusers, they're so invested in power and control that they wreak havoc after finding out that they've lost the opportunity to control their victim because the victim has found someone new. And so because of the timing between their breakup and Morgan's new relationship, right? So like she had broken up with him in June and then at the end of July, she's murdered. And so after she breaks up with him, you know, within a month, month and a half, she's dating someone new. I'm intrigued to know if that was the catalyst to her ex-boyfriend's rage. However, I want to make it very clear that this does not negate her victimization in this. She is perfectly entitled to moving on and finding someone else. to be with, even if it's a month later, right? It could have been two days later after breaking it off with her abusive ex-boyfriend. And it's that's perfectly fine, right? Because she deserves to be with someone who is not abusive. And so she is not to blame for her ex-boyfriend's actions against her. I want to make that very clear because I don't want anyone to think that this is her fault, right? She is not responsible for her ex-boyfriend abusing her and she's not even responsible for going and meeting up with him, right? We have to acknowledge that, like I said, that is a tactic that abusers use and because victims want to see the good, right? And it is the cycle of abuse, right? It is the cycle of power and control that happens, And lots of DV organizations can explain this in more detail, provide some more stats to really dive deep into this. I could do a whole episode about this particular subject, but it's very important to understand that she does not have culpability in this situation. Right. She went there with the she did not know that he was going to kill her. She went there with every good intention to talk to him even if in the back of her mind that she knew there was the potential for violence, she probably thought that it was going to make herself safer and all of her friends and family safer if she just went and talked to him. And so I I still want to make it perfectly clear, right, that she is entitled to moving on and finding someone else to be with, and she is not to blame for what happened to her in any aspect. So with all that said, now let's talk about how Morgan and her friends and family could have actually benefited from better understanding teen dating violence. So first, early intervention. In 2011, the Department of Justice released an article from Dr. Bruce Taylor and his colleagues about a teen dating violence program in New York City middle schools. So this particular research found that dating violence was decreased by about 50% in the schools that had um, teen dating violence prevention programs. So if Morgan and her friends had learned to spot the signs of dating violence in middle school and stuck with those signs throughout high school, then she might have never even dated the defendant or she'd have gotten help much earlier. Number two, parent education. Since Morgan attended a private school, and from my understanding, it was also a private Catholic all-girls school, there might have been less opportunities for parents of the students to learn about teen TV. Um, There are some organizations that provide free education, and then there are a lot of organizations that don't. And so for private schools with funding, things can be a little bit different. And parents also have a much larger say in what education is brought to their kids. And so there might not have been a very big push for this type of education happening at the high school. Um, And maybe the high school didn't even realize that it was something that was going on that they needed to address, um, especially because one, it's a school that has a religious founding, and two, it's an all-girls school. So theoretically, you know, they won't have a lot of students in relationships while at the school, they would be students who might be dating individuals outside of the school, unless they were involved in the LGBT community. Of course, like I said, it's a private school, so they really have control over what they are educating their students on. Um, And even still, even if they had provided dating violence education, right? If kids don't know the signs, or even if they do, they might not say anything, right? There's so many other influences to that. So there's bystander intervention and the bystander effect, and then there's also peer pressure. There are so many different things that could influence kids to choose not to really say anything or not even pay attention. But when parents know what signs to spot, they can ultimately save their kids. So having some type of parent education available could have been highly beneficial and could be highly beneficial in the future. Um, In fact, Love is Respect even has a Support Your Child webpage that can provide parents with tips and guidance in identifying whether their child is in an abusive relationship or what to do if their child comes to them and informs them and says, hey, I think, you know, I'm in an abusive relationship right now. Now as a result of Morgan's murder, her parents have actually started their own teen dating violence program called Morgan's Light that educates the public about dating violence. But her high school now actually has some more programs that are dedicated to teaching their students about dating violence. And I've made sure to provide both of those resources for you in the episode description. So for those of us in the field, what can we continue to do that will hopefully save others from experiencing what Morgan did? First, be persistent. Some schools, organizations, and businesses don't want to hear about dating violence prevention. Some of them actually fear that hearing this information, right, like the kids hearing this information, will only inspire them to commit these acts. Unfortunately, a lot of that thinking is misguided. There's been numerous studies that indicate early knowledge actually leads to higher rates of prevention. And as I always like to say, right, the goal isn't just to have people identify when they're being abused. It's to have people identify their own abusive behaviors and work against them. So it's about recognizing that threatening to share nude photos of your partner is abusive. And on the same coin, so is getting upset when your partner wants to spend time with friends or family without you. That could potentially lead you to being overly aggressive with your partner and verbally abusive, or could possibly even escalate into physical violence. I mean, there are so many behaviors that are toxic and border on abusive, and so if we know what they are, we can manage ourselves and our own behaviors better to prevent making someone feel the way that Morgan felt, scared and afraid, and ultimately, like, she had no choice but to go and talk to her ex-boyfriend to prevent him from doing something violent to anybody else. And so second, we can provide information. This is one of the reasons we started the podcast. Different people absorb information in different ways. Some prefer to watch videos, so we have a blog. Some prefer to read articles. So we have a blog. Some people prefer to visit links of statistical reports or scholarly articles. And those of us who are very critical thinkers and love to kind of know the methodology about things, which I'm kind of, you know, telling on my nerdiness here, but we provide links to fact sheets on social media, to abstracts of articles, to statistics that are published by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. There are so many different reports out there, and there are so many different ways and mediums that can provide information, and they're gateways to having a better education and being better informed about subjects. And so as long as we're providing correct information and we're acknowledging that we need to do better or that we might need to have some more updated information, things like that, and we're doing the right thing. And last and most important, we need to support teams who come forward. Society has a knack for dismissing younger generations. When teens don't feel like people are listening to them or take them seriously, then they won't come forward when something is truly wrong. We always hear people saying, "Well, why didn't they say something?" And the answer is usually one of two things. Either they weren't educated, so they couldn't identify what was wrong, or they felt disempowered because of prior experiences and didn't think they'd be supported or believed. When a teen says they think they're being abused by their partner, don't chew them away or dismiss their concerns as just something all teens do in relationships. I have an unfortunate newsflash for you, so chances are, if you think some of the abusive behaviors are normal for teens in relationships because it was something that you experienced with your first few partners, you are actually a survivor of teen DV, and I know that that can be very difficult to wrestle with and coming to that realization can cause a lot of unresolved trauma to come to the surface. So I always wanna recommend to parents that if they have made this realization, speak with a counselor because it can go a long way in uncovering these past traumas and helping you learn to effectively cope with them. And then you can in turn better support your teen or any teen that comes forward to you saying They are experiencing teen DV or that they're a survivor and they've made this realization that since this relationship has ended, they've gone back and they've taken, you know, that toxic relationship or abusive relationship quiz on Buzzfeed or something. And they have realized that they were in an abusive relationship when they were 15, and they come to you, you can encourage them and you can empower them and use your own story as a way to do that. Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month is a great tool for better understanding how dating violence affects teenagers. The CDC actually has a helpful list of ways that dating violence does affect teenagers on their website. And unfortunately for Morgan, it affected her in one of the worst ways possible. She lost her life. So let's do Morgan a favor and every other teen out there who hasn't had the same level of media coverage as Morgan to work hard and to prevent this from happening to anybody else. Thanks for listening to this episode of Serving Victims Through the System. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, make sure to send us a message and share this episode on social media while you wait for our next one.